Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 135. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me today in the studio, we have another guest, Tom Lockney. Hi, Kip. So today, as the title of this episode suggests, this is going to be another entry in the Four Non-Gamers series, in this case talking about downloadable content, or DLC. And to explain, especially for listeners who don't know much about gaming, what DLC is, it pertains to any form of content that a developer, let's say Nintendo, might put out and sell after a main game had been released. So you might buy Mario Kart 8, for example, and months later Nintendo might sell you additional racetracks for this racing franchise of theirs, in addition to different characters, often referred to as skins, because they have only aesthetic differences rather than actual gameplay differences from previous elements in the game that you had purchased. And it may sound simplistic to some and not worthy of conversation, but there is a lot of nuance there, and often in the gaming community, people are upset about DLC that they think is overpriced or unwarranted, and I'd like to expose my bias from the start and say that I personally think cosmetic downloadable content is not really worth the money that companies will charge, which often ranges from one to seven or eight dollars depending, and isn't terribly expensive, but to me does not notably change the gameplay experience in any memorable way. And to make a literary comparison, as I think is often useful when talking about a different medium, I think cosmetic downloadable content is similar to an author saying, I'm going to charge you $3 to read my book in a different font. The general content is the same, and the message you're getting, the experience you're having, I would argue, is not fundamentally changed, but it is changed enough that the creator feels entitled to a small additional profit. And as a first question to you, I'd be very curious to know if you have certain biases towards or against certain types of DLC, and it might help to explain to the audience what types of DLC you think exist. Well, I think that's an interesting question. Like you said, there are a lot of different forms, and because downloadable content is such a nebulously defined term, developers can go hog wild with it. They have cosmetic DLC, which I have mixed feelings about. There's mission content, so extra missions, extra racetracks. You gave the Mario Kart example earlier. My personal feelings about DLC come down to what I think of each developer, how I think the content that they're providing reflects on their game. For example, with cosmetic skins, I purchased Batman Arkham Knight, the newest Batman game, and Rocksteady, the developer, released several dozens, in fact, skins for that game. The Batman Beyond skin, a lot of different Robin skins, the classic 1960s Adam West Batman, and that sort of stuff I actually enjoy. I paid extra money for that so that way I could have those skins because I'm a longtime Batman fan and I appreciate that stuff in the game. It's goofy, it's fun, it shows a reverence for the source material. There are other instances where cosmetic skins are clearly a cash grab And again, I don't want to write that off completely because there are developers who I like the products that they make. They release DLC because the cost of 
game development has skyrocketed recently, and frankly, every penny counts. That doesn't mean that these cosmetic DLCs are any less hollow. It doesn't mean that they change the gameplay. But if I really appreciate a developer and their work, I will give them my money. I will vote with my wallet because I want them to keep making games and I want them to continue to get my money. Very well said. And I'm glad you bring up the cost of game development because as consumers, especially as vocal consumers, I don't think we tend to consider in any media the costs that are associated with the products that we enjoy. We simply want to buy them and might not care what the story is behind the products and even less so about the producers who make these products. And it is, of course, a capitalist system in which you have to earn money for the products that you make in order to pay the bills and buy food and survive. And so it makes sense, absolutely, that you might be charged for additional content. There have been wonderful examples of developers, including free downloadable content that adds tremendous replay value to a game. In certain cases, level creators in which users who have very solid understandings of the mechanics of certain video games can make their own levels for other users, increasing replayability almost infinitely. And I would give the hypothetical parallel there of a film studio giving audiences access to unedited and raw footage so that they might recut the film as they see fit. And you have very interesting possibilities when consumers are allowed to experiment with certain game code, essentially, and make their own game. And that type of DLC, to me, is phenomenal, whether it's free or not. The ability to give back to the game, in a way, and develop a community around other creators who also play that game. So you bring up gamers influencing the design of the game interacting in a way with the developer to create a better product, a more balanced, enjoyable piece of art. And now more than ever before with online connectivity becoming so widespread, especially post-release for developers to update their games. I think we're in an age of constantly evolving games where DLC is maybe not the only form by which games are changed and updated because DLC is content-based. And yes, we have level editors and such like that, which I think is really interesting because right now games are connected all the time to the internet. And what happens now is instead of games being like a music album where the musician records their album, releases it, and then they're done and they sort of just have to wait for the critical and commercial response. Games now continue to operate. The developers continue to build upon their game immediately after release. At the time of this recording, I've just purchased Dark Souls 3. It was released yesterday for me. And when I fired up the game, the first thing I had to do was update it because the developers released this game and did not go home. They continued to work to fix their game and iron out the bugs and make sure everything's working properly because the scope of game design has expanded so vastly, especially with AAA mainstream blockbuster titles. It's near impossible to release a totally finished product. And that's fine. That's something that 
gaming as an industry has sort of reconciled with itself. But I think DLC is related because now we have the phenomenon of day one DLC, which is when a game is released and on the very first day, on the moment of release, there is content that's meant to be included in the game that you can pay money for on the day of release, which is, I think, ethically questionable. More so, I am less willing to forgive the business sensibilities of DLC when it comes to day one, and many others are as well. It's one of the most derided business practices in gaming today, I think. And do you have any thoughts on day one DLC? I absolutely do. And it will tie into a larger issue that I have, which is this idea of the completed product. And it doesn't necessarily apply to games, although we are certainly using games as a lens to examine what it means to be a complete product. But in support of day one DLC, I can envision a developer's argument that there are different versions or tiers of the game and players who want a very bare bones experience and may not know how thoroughly they want to invest in a game, both in terms of money and also their time. It makes sense that they might purchase the cheaper version, which was traditionally the full version before DLC was introduced. And if in fact they enjoy the game, then it is their right to spend additional money to add on to the game that already existed. But in criticism of day one DLC, it can absolutely be viewed as creating an artificial paywall of sorts behind which you hide some of your content for lack of a better term. Because with other formats of downloadable content, you might buy a game in November and the next May, the developer who has been hard at work releases new modes or new areas to explore or new missions for your character to complete. To me, that is an add-on of sorts and an epilogue, whereas Day One DLC feels as though you wrote a book, so to speak, and took out the odd-numbered chapters and are charging customers additional money to read what I think many people feel is their right to consume because it was ready on the day of release. And there's absolutely controversy about it, and we will attach articles to this episode, as always, for anyone who is interested in reading more. What do you think about it? I've tried to keep a somewhat neutral stance, but I'm going to hop on this critique train for a minute because we come from a very privileged position. As far as games go, we can make informed decisions because we have the time and the passion for this, and we have the money to make these informed decisions and spend our cash accordingly. But there's a lot of people who don't have that luxury or don't have the time, whereas I spend a lot of my time on game journalist outlets, Game Informer, Polygon, Giant Bomb. A lot of folks are just coming home from work and are trying to play some Call of Duty to de-stress at the end of the day, and they don't have have the cultural awareness of what's going on, the industry trends, the business aspects of it. And so they don't necessarily have the knowledge that you or I go into when we're making these purchases. And I think it's a different situation for a lot of these people because maybe they're just spending their money on Call of Duty, but also they don't necessarily know whether or not they're getting nickeled and dimed in a game. And I don't think Call of Duty does that, frankly. I think Call of Duty's DLC is actually fairly well-priced and well-designed. I think Call of Duty actually does it quite well. And to compare this to other mediums, let's look at music. You buy an album, but there's also a deluxe edition. But also the difference between that album and the deluxe edition is five bucks. Ten dollars for the regular. 15 for the deluxe. Whereas in a game, if you're going mainstream, AAA development, which a lot of people are, you're looking at $60 plus 
15 to 20 for a mission pack. The most egregious example I can think of was Battlefield 4. Came out a couple years ago. $60 game. All the DLC together brought that, I want to say, somewhere around $120, $130. Something else we should consider specifically with games like that is they'll offer a quote-unquote season pass where you pay in bulk, say, $20 to $30. That's all you have to pay for all the DLC. So you get it at a slight discount. And there's that little bit of incentivization, but that season pass model has plenty of flaws in and of itself. I agree. And I'm really glad that you bring it up because there is a lot of blind trust that can go into it because you might be investing in several rounds of DLC or downloadable content for those who have forgotten. And it can be a very tricky and I would argue ethically gray area because you don't know what you're paying for. There are probably Star Wars fans listening. And in 2015, in November, Star Wars Battlefront A very popular franchise was renewed, and this third entry in the series was published for $60, and you could additionally buy the season pass for another $60, but not a lot was known about what would be in additional downloadable content for that game. And there's a great risk in not knowing what you're buying, again, to make another comparison. If we lived in a world where there were no movie trailers, reviews, or interviews with the cast and crew of a film, I feel like a season pass for a game's downloadable content is akin to paying for a movie that you know nothing about except for its title and maybe its genre. And there is something to be said about treating your fans and the people who are going to pay for your game with respect, and so I much more thoroughly appreciate developers who are willing to tell you what will be in the downloadable content and giving you the option to pay in bulk so that you might save a little bit of money as you said an incentive in comparison to those who give almost no information and i'm glad that you mentioned the concept of nickel and diming because some dlc is not this large 9.99 or 15.99 package but rather microtransactions which become very interesting in the realm of video gaming. And again, to give an explanation to listeners who might not know, if you are playing a game where you have a limited number of lives and you run out, you might be able to pay an additional 99 cents to purchase extra lives. And eventually that can add up. And there have been horror stories, especially for mobile users on their smartphones, where children who have access to their parents' credit cards or don't really know how the app store works on said smartphone, will purchase bonus after bonus, not knowing that they are slowly racking up a bill. And that in and of itself, I think, is an issue of parental control. But in terms of certain games, I've often been annoyed by the fact that certain players can pay for an advantage in a game. There are some excellent titles that have been made free to play, and so you can download it for free and play through it without ever paying anything. And one of my favorite games called Tribes, which is essentially a game of capture the flag with jetpacks, does not charge you anything. And if you want to pay for modifications and bonuses for your character, you can. But you can also earn that by playing the game and genuinely honing your skills. And if done well, it can be a very balanced experience that doesn't necessarily have any parallel in the world of books or movies or music. 
because those experiences are all very linear and all users, at least if they can afford it, will have the same experience. And I know I went on there for a while, but how do you feel about microtransactions, especially as they relate to free to play games? Well, microtransactions to your listeners, if you've played an iPhone game, you know what these are. But I'm intensely conflicted about microtransactions because, again, some developers are really good, make a really good product, and because of the business side of game development, are really compelled to compete in that market, especially the mobile market. Oh my God, especially the mobile market. You have to have microtransactions. You have to try and trick your players into spending their money. That doesn't make it right. It just means that they're pigeonholed into market trends. And that's an unfortunate part of the current state of the game industry. As far as multiplayer games, I think a lot of the content that we've been talking about DLC-wise has been single-player focused where you are talking about missions or skins. And skins do show up in multiplayer games. Specifically free-to-play multiplayer games. Free-to-play multiplayer games are this beautiful concept that is also sort of inherently evil because it's amazing that so much work was put into these really a lot of them are very good games tribes is incredible planet side 2 is another really good one but again the nature of <laughs> the capitalist beast is that you have to turn a profit and you can't turn a profit on a free to play game if you don't have options for players to give you their money. And so again, I find myself torn between my appreciation for games as an art and as a sport, as this incredible creative output that I want to support and I want to put my money into. But there's also the other side of me that is disappointed by the purity that microtransactions dilute because my experience as somebody who plays a free-to-play game and does not spend money on it will be inherently different than somebody who does spend money on it. And if they want to do that and they have the finances to do it, more power to them. But it does unbalance the artistic experience. I'm really glad that you bring up this idea of imbalance in user experience because to keep the attention of listeners who may not be gamers, I would contend that video game developers are very much like gods in the worlds they create because they program the physics and the geography and the characters and how these characters sound and act, everything about the world that you are playing in. And when there are models where certain players can pay more to have a different and in many cases superior or more powerful experience, in a very strange way, a class system emerges where players who have more money and presumably in the real world come from higher classes and can afford to spend that money have superior experiences and more control in whatever game they're playing. And players who cannot afford to pay into that system or admittedly choose not to take the role of a laborer of sorts where they have to work their way up to reach a similar status. And I find that very interesting. And as a final point that I'd like to discuss with you, I think it's fascinating to think about the idea that downloadable content might fundamentally unravel the idea of a completed product. And I say product instead of game because I think there are examples and other markets might come to adopt this model in which creators never release a definitive edition of what they are producing. For example, I could continue to edit these podcast episodes and I might continue to add on to it instead of creating new content. 
There have been video game review sites that return to games after downloadable content has been released because the gameplay experience has fundamentally changed over time. And not necessarily looking specifically at video games now, what do you think about this idea of a complete product? And do you think we live in an era where there are fewer and fewer quote unquote completed products? I think the era of completed products is in its twilight, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because I mentioned earlier AAA development is massive in scale, and it's near impossible for teams of literally hundreds of people to possibly identify and account for every bug, glitch, imbalance in a game. To move this outside of games, we're definitely seeing the same thing begin to happen in other mediums. Look at Kanye West's new album. He released it, and then later that same week, started tweeting about how he was going to fix different tracks. Wolves was the big one that everybody noticed, and I think that has the potential to change the way that musicians record and release albums. And another example that just came to me is the idea of the 24-hour news channel, which I think in many ways is built not on the same model, but on the same principle, that we can keep releasing content, and as long as we keep that stream steady, we will have the attention of our audiences, because a one-hour segment for the news at the end of the day is no longer sufficient, and so the model expands to account for more content. What's happening, too, is we're a culture that is rapidly approaching an always online existence. And as you see that happening, you will see other forms of media account for that. And to bring it back down to games a little bit, I think that the rise in betas and alphas, and for those who don't know, those are early versions of the game when it's not released yet, but certain players are given the opportunity to play this game, to test it, and give the developers feedback before the official release. But since the rise of always online games or games that are connected post-release, you've seen a rise in betas and alphas where they can put out a literally unfinished product, an explicitly unfinished product, and have gamers work on them and refine them by playing them. And this is also manifested in quote-unquote early access games where it's not explicitly called a beta or an alpha, but the games are given a wide release, not just to a select few, to the entire consumer public to play and enjoy a explicitly unfinished product. And it happens all the time now. I don't want to come off like this is an exclusively bad thing because it's not. It's just new and it's different. But we as consumers have a responsibility to think about these things and how they might influence the mediums that we love and enjoy, because otherwise you will see another cynical business exploitation of games, music, movies that will nickel and dime people. And so it's important to think about these new trends and what they might mean in the future for us as consumers and as each industry as a business. And I'm glad that you mentioned thought because before we close, I'd like to know what you want the audience to think about after listening to this conversation. To anyone listening, gamer or non-gamer, because it applies to everybody, we are consumers that dictate the market with our money. And therefore, I think the impetus is sort of on us to make informed purchases. And for people who aren't gamers, I would recommend sites like Game Informer or Polygon or Giant Bomb, Kotaku, IGN is another great site. Just Google IGN and maybe the name of the DLC that you want. Maybe wait a day or two after it's released to purchase it. Try to read feedback. Is it worth your money? Should you be spending your money on this? 
And again, I don't think that this applies to just games. I think this applies to anything. This is why you maybe read an album review before you buy it. I don't think that you should take reviews word as law. I think that's a trend with dangerous results as well. But it's one step closer to making an informed purchase, which is what every consumer should strive to do. I echo those points and encourage consumers to be informed in their product choices. And I would also encourage listeners to think about the idea of a complete or an incomplete product because it might have ramifications for how you enjoy a certain product that you consume. And for those listening who are non-gamers, I would really love to know what you thought about this conversation and how you might apply it to phenomena and media experiences in your lives. And Tom, I want to thank you very much for coming on. It was great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. This was a pleasure. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we would genuinely love to hear from you. So if you have any feedback, opinions, or input of any kind, reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it and get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.